Good morning. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter number 12 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's fine. You can follow along on the Bible app on your phone or tablet. You should see a link to our service in there if you go to the events tab or church family. You can go to the church app and all the notes are there. This morning I want to get back into the Gospel of John. Last week, a necessary interruption in the flow as we looked at Matthew 24. And uh, grateful that sermon, by God's kindness, is still bearing fruit. Um, So grateful for that. It's important that we know what Jesus said about the end times. And where He's clear, keep that the main thing. And where there seems to be a lack of clarity and difference of opinion, um, it's fine to ponder those things, but don't get caught in the weeds. Stay on mission, stay on task. It's been four weeks, though, since I've been in John's Gospel. It feels like an old friend I haven't seen in a while, and it's good to be back with him. Some of you are saying, quite honestly, will we ever get out of John? (laughs) Welcome to Grace Covenant. I've given you time to get there to John 12. Let me just give you uh, some food for thought. While I was reading and preparing for this week, I I typically don't get illustrations from other writers. I don't, like if somebody's saying, here's a great illustration for John chapter number 12's passage. I, I mean, I try to avoid those. Been, they've been used 12 ways to Sunday, but this one just gripped me. I, I used it last night with the family. I didn't come up with this. I've tweaked it a bit, but I want you to just imagine with me for a moment. It's a great way to get started. When I say, when you think of Prince Charming, what comes to mind? Just take a moment. Please don't answer out loud. Ladies, we know you're thinking of your husband next to you. We get that. But for a moment, imagine that's not what pops to your mind. When you think of Prince Charming, what comes to mind? Do you have a picture? I know you're all picturing a short, pudgy, balding, elderly man who shows up panting and wheezing, uh, trying to ride on a billy goat. Yes? No? No, of course not. Now, we can talk about how we've all been conditioned and all those things. I get all that. But... That's not the point I'm chasing. The point is, we think of a hero or a Prince Charming in a certain way. We've got an image, and anything else just seems off. Now, imagine you are in the nth generation of a people, a family, and you've been promised a king from God Himself. You've been promised a gift from heaven that would come and come through for you and all of humanity. In the children's book, the Jesus Storybook Bible, Isaiah's letter is summarized in this way, and I found it pointed for this morning. Listen to what he says, this letter to the God's people. You've been stumbling around like people in a dark room, but into the darkness a bright light will shine. It will chase away the shadows like sunshine. A little baby will be born. A royal son. His mommy will be a young girl who doesn't have a husband. His name will be Emmanuel, which means God has come to live with us. He's one of King David's children's children's children, the Prince of Peace. Yes, someone is going to come and rescue you, but he won't be who anyone expects. He will be a king, but he won't live in a palace. He won't have lots of money. He'll be poor. And he will be a servant, but this king will heal the whole world. He will be a hero, and he will fight for his people and rescue them from the enemies, but he won't have big armies and won't fight with swords. 
He'll make the blind to see and the lame to leap like the deer. He'll make everything the way it was always meant to be, but people will hate him. They won't listen to him. He'll be like a lamb. He will suffer and die. It's God's secret rescue plan from before the beginning of the world. It's the only way to get you back, but he won't stay dead. I, the Lord, will make him alive again. The rescuer will come. Look for him. Watch for him. Wait for him. He will come. I promise. So Israel's clinging to these promises. But the Bible tells us in John chapter number one, if you can think back to when we began, that Jesus came into his own and his own people did not receive him. He turns the water into wine. He heals the sick. He feeds the multitude. He raises the dead. And the religious leaders are so locked into their rejection of Jesus as Messiah, they even set out a plot to kill Lazarus. If you just glance back with me quickly for context, in verses 9 through 11, you'll see when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on the account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. I want you to know that when Jesus Christ calls you from death to life and from light uh, to light from the darkness with His love and grace, you too should be drawing people to Jesus. I pray that all of our lives that have been made new in Christ put the devil on notice and make posers nervous around us. Just like the timing was perfect for Jesus to come to Bethlehem, the timing is now perfect for Him to enter Jerusalem this way, this time. I'm conscious that this is a Palm Sunday experience, and today on the calendar is not Palm Sunday, but it's where we are in the text. So this morning we're going to navigate it. We will touch the Palm Sunday elements, but I want you to take notice this morning of this victorious King. Sometimes we have a picture of victory in our minds for our own lives that looks quite differently than what God's definition of victory is for us. That's really the sermon this morning. Let me get there, if you don't mind. The first thing I'd have you write down that we're going to notice in the text is the king's coming. We see this in verses 12 through 15. If you're taking notes this morning, hint, hint, take notes this morning. That's the first thing to write down. The king's coming. His arrival. Look at how he comes. There's praise from the people. You see it in verse 13. The praise from God's people. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king of Israel. Such praise. Such glory. He's coming humbly, but he's coming the way that they knew the prophet had told them he would come. In fact... In the very next verses, we see the promise of prophecy. So these are the things we see right there in the beginning. We see the praise of the people and the promise of prophecy. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. These people have longed for victory. They've been suffering defeat for so long. They've been in bondage to the Roman Empire for so long. They've known captivity for generations. They need a culture shift. 
back to their way of life. And they're looking for somebody to lead the charge. They need a political savior and a uh, military general to amass an army and overthrow their captors. What they say is actually biblical and accurate. Their longings are not necessarily wrong if you think about what they need. But they're so focused on their immediate need, they're missing the bigger picture. The psalmist says, save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This is where they were singing. By the way, all throughout the New Testament, you see time and time again, on the lips of those praising the Lord are the Psalms. Jesus quotes the Psalms. He quotes them from the cross. He quotes them all throughout his ministry. Can I encourage you this morning? You need a daily diet of the Psalms. If you do five every day, shocker, you'll work through 150 each month. Uh, there are 28 days in one month. Stop. Just read the Psalms. Get a steady diet of the Psalms. And then when you want to upgrade, add one proverb a day, and you'll have five Psalms and one proverb a day, and you'll be cycling through how to glorify God and how to relate to man. I didn't come up with that. But that's a great little formula, isn't it? The Psalms was on, were on their lips as their king came into town. The problem with their view was that they were only focused on their present need as they understood it. They thought the big enemy was Rome and Jesus was not concerned with the Romans in that way. He was focused on the greater and more powerful enemies that were chasing down His people. He had come to completely defeat these sinister enemies that were chasing down not only the Jews, but the Gentiles alike. Jesus knew about the plans of the enemy that were to thwart humanity. What enemies could be more powerful than the mighty Roman Empire? Sin and death. Sin and death. These countrymen who are so excited but short-sighted are like us in many ways, aren't they? We get in a pinch, we get in a bind, we get in a crisis, we see the world seemingly spinning out of control and we cry, fix it Jesus, to the situation or to that situation. We see the hurting and the brokenness all around us and we want it stopped. We think that's the big problem. We grieve at human suffering and wonder why this is allowed, and that is allowed, and this is allowed, and that is allowed. And then we see human enterprise erect itself to meet these needs, and they are noble causes and good endeavors, but then corruption can creep into even good organizations. We see uh, good organizations and leaders let us down. Sin has tainted everything. It's our enemy. The king came into this city just like the Bible said he would. The people had an idea of the victory that they wanted based on what they were experiencing. Oh, hear me, brothers and sisters, this morning. You may have an idea of the victory that you think you need from God based on what you're going through, and God may have something completely different in mind that meets your greater need. Even the disciples didn't fully grasp all that was transpiring right in front of them until after the fact. The next passage proves that with us and takes us to our second point, the king's 
cause. So we see the king has come, and now the king is going to unpack his cause for us. Just look at verse 16 with me quickly. Uh, This has already been read to us, but it says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about Him and had been done to Him. I think many of us are like the disciples here. You know, they say hindsight's 50-50. Wait, no, just sorry. Some of you will get that later. I I wonder uh, when it was that it dawned on them that these things would come to light. I wonder if it was, uh, yes, when Jesus was glorified and ascended, I wonder if in the upper room they were reminded again when the Holy Spirit came. I, I wonder what came to light and how it happened. Here's what came to light. The king's cause was far greater than their immediate need. And here's the victorious king who would wear a crown but would have to go through the cross to get the crown. Back in the 90s, a great gospel song that says, there's not a victory without a fight. There's not a sunrise without a night. There's not a purchase without a cost. And there's not a crown without a cross. This victorious king's cause was not what anyone wanted to deal with. But it's what everyone needed dealt with. So what is his cause? couple subpoints under this. The first one is, he came to die. He came to die. Boy, that is just as morbid as you can get, isn't it? Do you remember the wise man? I've seen little spoofs, little uh, Christian reenactments, if you will, as best we can. And you see the shepherds standing by the manger and the Then they leave and and these wise men come later on in life and and Joseph's there and he's like, man, this is awesome. You guys here and one says, what did you bring? I brought gold. He's like, you brought gold? We're just poor. Like, wow, you brought gold. And he and Mary look at each other like they must know. They must know. Royalty. The other guy says, I brought frankincense. I don't know if you bought, I'm not peddling essential oils, but have you ever bought like uh, a drop of frankincense? You have to sell a car. Like you you gotta choose, do I buy tires or frankincense? Like it's expensive now. It's always been expensive. And and so this guy says, we bring frankincense. They're like, oh, how precious of a gift. And then the other guy walks in and the the reenactment has him going like, I brought myrrh. I'm sorry, you brought what? Myrrh. Yeah, you know he's a kid, right? This isn't a funeral. Brought myrrh. That's all the guy can say in the reenactment. He brought myrrh. No, here's the thing. From Bethlehem, when he arrived, even the star was pointing him to the cross and the fact that he had come to die. Jesus had come to die. He says in verses 23 and 24, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's not dying for political ideology. He is dying to defeat death and sin. He's dying for the sins of the world. Like the Jews and the Gentiles who show up in just a few moments, we all have a sin need that needs to be dealt with. The Bible tells us there's none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God on their own. All have turned aside. Together, they have gone 
in their own way. No one does good, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3. And then it gets worse. The consequences of our sin are death and destruction. For the wages of sin is death, the Bible says. Hebrews 9 tells us we have an appointment with death and after that the judgment. But the King came to redeem us from the curse of sin and death. 1 Peter tells us Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. He came to die. Colossians 2 tells us He erased the certificate of debt with His obligations that was against us and opposed to us. He's taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He came to die. He is the propitiation for our sins, 1 John 2 tells us. And not for ours only, but for the whole world. He came to die. 1 Peter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This victorious King would have to pass through death to demonstrate He was indeed Victorious. This king, unlike others, came to die for the sake of others. He came to die. The second thing this king did and reveals to us in his cause is that he came to draw people to himself. He came to draw people to himself. Jesus promised that He would draw mankind to Himself. He says it here in verses 20-22. through 22. There are other passages that demonstrate this, but let me just read 20 and 22 to you. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. These Greeks went to go find out who Jesus was. They had heard about Jesus and they knew to go and find somebody who had been with Jesus. They asked somebody who they knew had a relationship with Jesus to point them to Jesus. By the way, that is the natural result of someone being supernaturally saved by Jesus for us to point others to the Lord Jesus Christ. The weirdos, according to the Bible, are the ones who never tell others about Jesus, not the evangelist. Those who are out proclaiming the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is normal Christianity in this. The fact that less than 2% of the confessing church tells one person a year about the Lord Jesus Christ, that's weird not the ones who make it a regular part of their rhythm. It is unnatural for us to keep quiet about Jesus. It is unholy for us to keep quiet about Jesus. It is a reproach for us to keep quiet about Jesus. It's unnatural for us to say we love people. Well, I love people too much, I don't want to offend them. Well, you don't offend them while they're on their way to hell. And stand before God one day and say, why didn't you tell me? Why why didn't you tell me? It's unnatural for us to keep this to ourselves. J.I. Packer, for those of you theological 
uh, theologically minded people. Packer says it this way, all true theology has an evangelistic thread and thrust and all true evangelism is theology in action. The church needs no more academic theologians. We actually need to lock them up and send them somewhere. We need people out living out the gospel and inviting people to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Four years and some change. You've heard that before. But if you read the Bible, you'll hear it more than you hear this little preacher say it from this pulpit. Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. And just a few verses later, He says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all people to Myself. The King's coming excites people to praise Him and adore Him, even though He's going to turn out to be not exactly what they wanted. The king announces his cause to them and says, I've come to die and I've come to draw everybody to me. And Philip gets it. These people come looking to worship Jesus. They find people that have been with Jesus. I heard a quote this past week that has rocked my world. And, and this, this wonderful man of God says to his congregation on a regular basis, your pastor should not be the first person to tell your friend about Jesus. Finally, this morning, we see the king's call to us. The king's call in verses 24 through 26. Let's look at this full text here. It just is so, so beautiful. Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Wow. All right, we're going to do some Bible study, some inductive stuff right now together. I want you to keep that passage open. You're going to look at it. We're going to look at some of the main points in the passage. Again, I try to preach and teach in a way that when you open the text, you go, yeah, I see that. It's right here. Boom. If you leave every Sunday going, I wonder where he got that from. That's a red flag. Like, that's a red flag. But let's look at what the text says. What, what are some things here? He's, this is the king's call to those who were after him. Let, let's just see what we see there. What are some things that stare us right in the face? The first thing I see is bearing much fruit. Do you see it there? Am I reaching? Let's see if I'm reaching. It says, unless green, and it remains, if it does, it bears much fruit. Fruit. I don't think he's just talking about a seed, literally, in this moment. I think he's talking about his own life. Obviously, that's the context. He's also talking about, as you look at the next couple of verses, our own lives. And when we lay our lives down for the sake of Christ, then there's fruit that comes from that for the glory of God. The Bible says in Proverbs 11.30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. There should be some fruit in our lives. Yes, good morals, but there are people who are uh, not Christians who have good morals. There should be some spiritual fruit in our lives that brings glory and honor to Jesus. What's the next thing I see? I see in there losing our lives. You see that? Losing our own lives. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world loses it. So you see there's this sense of losing our lives. What does that mean? It means laying down our lives... 
our sinful, selfish pursuits for the sake of His life live through us. Paul captures it beautifully in Galatians when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Whenever I speak somewhere, Brother Mark's travel with me a couple places I've been to speak. I pray before I get up. I've been praying it for years. I was trained to pray this way. I hope it settles in my spirit. God, it's okay if I'm forgettable, but let people have an encounter with Jesus. That's about as anti-celebrity um, pastor as you can be. <laughs> I'm okay with that. Losing our lives. Laying down our lives. Look at the next thing, hatred. Oh, no, we don't say hate in our home. Okay. So hatred. <laughs> he says, whoever loves his life, use it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. I asked my kids last night, what does it mean? What's, what's Jesus saying there? We had some great conversation, and they were right on it. We need to hate the things in our lives that get in the way of God's good and perfect will. We don't hate the things of beauty that reveal God and the ingenuity of man or things that God... You, you've never heard me say that. But the things that keep tripping us up and get between us and God, the things we can't do without, those are idols. We better be careful. The Bible says in Romans 8, 13, if you live according to the flesh, you'll die, but if the Spirit... Uh, but if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body and you live for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Look on in the text. I see serving Jesus in there. Do you see it? If anyone serves me. Romans 12, 11, Don't be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. How are you serving the Lord? How are you serving the Lord? Well, some of you do it so beautifully. Some of you do it vocationally. Some of you do it in your everyday life. Some of you do it in the raising of children. Some of you do it in, and offer your lives, every aspect of it, as a living sacrifice. This doesn't mean you need a title at church to serve the Lord or, or you have to be on a church trip or a church function to do that. But you ought to show up for some of those things. But it does mean we put feet to what we say. What we Believe affects how we behave. Everything else is just religious talk. And I don't know about you, but I, I'm, I'm not keenly interested in much more religious talk this day and age. And then I see finally in this little verse, following Jesus. Do you see it? Follow Jesus. If uh, He says, where I am, if, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. I think many of us are in lockstep with Jesus, following Him all the way to heaven. Can't wait to get there. Especially when we see sin and suffering and all the results of that. And we're like, oh, yes, I am following Jesus to the land of no more night. I am following Jesus to Beulah land. I'm longing to go. I'm following Jesus. I'm going to follow Him for eternity. And then Jesus looks back at us while we're following. He says, by the way, if you follow me, Matthew 4.19, I will make you fishers of men. Can you follow Jesus and not fish for men? What's the payoff? Heaven? Oh, that's a, that's a great benefit. What's the payoff? Overthrowing a regime? No. Social justice exacted? No. 
Fixing everything immediately? No. Answering all of our prayers, hopes, and dreams? No. What's the payoff? Do you see it? What's the payoff? Look at it. Verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. What's the payoff? We get to be with Jesus. Man, I hope that rocks your world sometimes when you ponder those thoughts. The lover of our souls, the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley, the bride and morning star, this love with skin stretched around him, gift from heaven that hung, bled and died for you, your sin nailed him to the cross. And he wants to be with you. If anyone serves me, the Father Father will honor him. How does God honor us? Giving us status and, and publicity and promotion? No, the Father lets us be with Jesus, his only begotten Son. Jesus underscores this desire for his people again. He says, if I go to Thomas in John 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'll come again and I will take you under myself. Why? What's his goal? That where I am, there you may be also. I'm really trying not to ugly cry through this, y'all, but this is awesome. When Jesus talks to his father and prays for us, he says, Father, I desire that they also that you've given to me may be with me where I am. How can we keep quiet about this God who loves us this much? No wonder, Paul says, it's better for me. I'm going to be home with the Lord. I'd rather be at home with the Lord where I belong. What a king. What a victorious king. He entered the city on a young donkey, uncrowned as it were. He exits the city, beaten almost to a pulp, carrying your cross and mine. And after hanging and bleeding and dying, Isaiah would say, scarred beyond the visage of man, looking like a bloody pulp on a Roman institute, a Roman instrument rather, of torture. This king entered the tomb, a dead man. But he exited fully alive and soon to return. There is victory in his coming, but it's not very attractive. In a manger, in a stable, coming in on a donkey without an entourage. There's victory in his cause, but it's not exactly what everybody thinks they want most. Death to sin in our lives. There's victory in his call, but it requires us to take up our cross and follow him. We can all get excited about Jesus once we come to know Him and know the depths of our sin and the Holy Spirit shows us our need for a Savior, once we come to see Christ alone as our salvation, but if we're not careful, we can have a wrong view of what victory looks like in our day-to-day life. Just like the Jews shouting Hosanna one day shouted crucify Him later. Like most of us have crafted a view of Prince Charming, or a modern-day hero because it fits a certain bill. Most of us have also crafted a view, watch this, of victory in the areas of success and health and wealth and all of these things 
And we feel like if it doesn't happen, God has somehow let us down. Here's the victory that our names are recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. Here's the victory that Christ alone fills our deepest longings. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. What about you this morning? Are you walking in the light of Christ? Or are you still bound in the darkness of this world? He's got a call to his people. There's also a call to those who are outside. If you look with me at verses 35 through 36, and I'm closing as Julia comes this morning. Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Step into the light today. Have a right view of the victory God wants for your life based on His Word. And you can sing with our parents and generations of old. I heard an old, old story. How a Savior came from glory. How He gave His life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning, of his precious blood's atoning. Then I repented of my sins and won the victory, oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me. And he bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him. All my love is due Him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. Father, I pray that You'd ruin us today with Your love. I know where I was before I knew You. I know where my mind went before I knew you. I'm still learning how black my heart was before I knew you. Thank you for saving me. God, with every breath in my body, how could I but speak of the love and the victory in Jesus? Do a deep and abiding work in us today, in Christ's name. Take a moment and spend some time with the Lord.
Father, we love You this morning. Thank You for Your Word. You are our victorious King. Lord, and victory is on Your terms. And victory took You to the cross to pay for our sin debt. Victory took You to the tomb. But thank God, victory, Lord, shows You as the resurrected Savior. Soon returning King. Lord, it's later than we think. As we talked about last week, God, help us to live our lives walking in the victory that our sins have been forgiven, that our names are written in the book of life. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, let the church say amen.